Our sermon today is either going to make you mad, sad, or glad. Thanks, Brett Hansberg, for that opening line. I owe Brett one. But um, I've been on quite a journey the last couple of weeks. Uh, Juan and I have spent a significant amount of time, uh, since we have so much time on our hands, uh, studying um, Roman Catholicism, reaching a deeper understanding of what they believe. And I think it's important for us to, to understand that. An email came out in the last couple of weeks from a, uh, a youth, uh, a, rather a church leader here in Harare, uh, who's part of uh, the Trump Accord Initiative. <clears throat> and they, were, they had some conferences coming up. And he sent out the following email, which really challenged me. It said, in the run-up to these conferences, it has been deeply stirring to note the participation and coordinated action of the Zimbabwe Catholic Bishops' Conference the Zimbabwe Council of Churches and the Evangelical Fellowship of Zimbabwe in pulling this together. These gatherings hold great promise for what God is doing in our nation and subcontinent these days. <clears throat> the reason it challenged me is that these were deeply stirred by the ecumenical movement that embraces the Catholic Bishops' Conference and believes that it is a promise for what God is doing in the nation in these days. And that got me looking at it and saying, is that right? Should we be embracing those things or shouldn't we? So what I want to do today is examine what the Catholic Church believes in terms of what the Bible says. And what is our response to Catholics? What about the many friends that we have as Catholics? Are they fair game for evangelism? Am I allowed to go and tell them the truth? Or do I say to myself, it doesn't matter. He's a Christian in a Catholic environment, and therefore I don't have to go and share what I believe and what I know to be true. What will our response be? You see, we know what the truth is. Each of us in the room knows what the truth is. God gave it to us. Our response is, what are we going to do about that truth now that we have it? Thank you, Dave, for Ezekiel this morning, because it's the scripture that comes and confirms that what I'm about to preach is what God has laid on my heart. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak. And give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die... And you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life. That wicked man will die for his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin. But you would have saved yourselves. Do we have a responsibility to tell people the truth or not. Clearly, Scripture says that we have. As we start off with uh, looking at what Catholics believe, I want to tell you that I've tried to be as fair as I can. I've tried to quote as much as I can directly from the Catholic catechisms or their official literature. The quotes that I will give today from Mary are those quotes approved by the Pope himself. This is not the sort of fridge-edge comments. These are the ones that have been approved by the Catholic Church. Bear that in mind. There's a lot of slides that we'll be looking at today. And I, I'm somewhat hesitant to give so much foot space to what Catholics believe in this room. But if we don't actually analyze what they believe, then I don't think we'll really be shocked into seeing that there's a fundamental difference between what they believe and what we believe. Let's start off by looking at the trap that the Catholics start off in. It's the very same trap that the Pharisees went off in. They don't accept the word as the only authority for their scripture. The Catholic Catechism number, 32, uh, number 82 says, The Roman Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scriptures and traditions must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments and devotion and reverence. That's the starting point. They consider their traditions and the words of the Pope 
and church tradition on an equal footing with the infallible Word of God. And I think as I demonstrate to you today, it hasn't always been infallible, trusting the wisdom of man. And yet, doesn't Scripture teach us something very different? Deuteronomy 4.2 Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of, God, of the Lord your God that I give you. Deuteronomy 12.32 See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His word or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Furthermore, Scripture goes on and warns us against the traditions of men in Mark chapter 7 verses 6 to 9. This is Jesus. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And I wonder, has no one in the Catholic Church read their Bible? It fascinates me. It astounds me and it frustrates me greatly that they can go and introduce things which are clearly scriptural, that are so easy to understand. And those are just a few examples of warnings against adding to God's Word. And yet in spite of that, an entire religious system is built up in direct contradiction to the very Word of God. Amazing how they would set aside the Word of God and put their traditions ahead of that. This idea of adding or subtracting to God's Word is a very dangerous process. Let me give you an extreme example. And I know that it's extreme. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> now for the matters you wrote about... It is good for a man not to marry. Fantastic. So let's make a rule. Let's say, for example, because it says that it's good for a man not to marry, let's say that our priests should not marry. Let's make a rule. There is no rule there now, but let's make one. But let's subtract verse 9. Because verse 9 of 1 Corinthians says this, But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then the Bible says that I must judge things by the fruit that it bears. A a, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, and a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. I found the following excerpt on Jacob Prash's website, and I'm not sure when the article was written, but let's read it. One month ago, the largest Roman Catholic seminary in Austria, a Catholic country, was closed down. The largest collection of child pornography, most of it of a homosexual nature, ever uncovered anywhere in the history of the world, was uncovered in the Roman Catholic Seminary near Vienna. 40,000 photos of priests and so forth having sex with little boys and little girls. 40,000. Plus the videos of older priests having sex with younger seminarians. The largest collection of internet internet child pornography, St. Joseph's Parish in Newcastle, England. 8,000 hours of child pornography placed on the internet by Roman Catholic priests presently in prison. What fruit do I see? Can we speak straight today? Did you know that forbidding to marry, the Bible describes as a doctrine of demons? Did you know that? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Forbidding people to marry is a doctrine of demons. 
and we see the fruit of it. That's man's wisdom. That's when man abandons what the Word of God says and decides to add their own rules or subtract the wisdom that the Bible gives them. What other deceiving doctrines do we see taking place in the Catholic Church that have absolutely no foundation in the Word of God? You will not find these things in the Word of God. You will not find indulgences. You will not find mass. You will not find penance. You will not find confession to a priest. And you will not find the terrible principle of purgatory. That somehow God's blood wasn't sufficient to pay for all your sin. And so that for a time you must go into the fires to pay for your own sin. Search the scriptures. Those things are not there. And then Catholics bow down and call their priests father. What does the Bible say about that? Matthew 23, 9 tells us, And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. And then you've got the Pope claiming that he is the head of the church. Could I ask you, who is the head of the church? Christ. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body, of which he is the Savior. Fascinating. Fascinating that men would try and usurp the titles of God. I don't know what you think, but I think it's highly blasphemous. Who do we think we are if we consider ourselves equal or even taking the titles which the Bible says are God's titles? And let me tell you, as you go through the sermon today, you will see that again and again and again. These popes are considered to be infallible. When they speak in the chair of Peter with the council of the bishops, the words they say are considered to be the very words of God. Infallible. That's how they got to be equal to Scripture. But guess what? In 1431, poor Joan of Arc was burnt at the stake as a heretic by the Roman Catholic Pope. 24 years later, another Pope revoked her condemnation. And then in 1920, another Pope exalted her to sainthood. Burnt at the stake as a heretic by an infallible Pope. The decision reversed by an infallible Pope. And finally, she's in the sainthood by an infallible Pope. And you tell me that the words of the Pope are infallible? What happened to Joan of Arc? Forgive me if I'm passionate about this, but I've never been so wound up over a single study that I've done. I could go on and on and on, but what I really want to do is start talking about more about the Mary of the Catholic Church. I specify the Mary of the Catholic Church because it is my heart's desire that the genuine Mary, the Mother of Christ, is hopefully blissfully unaware of what has been taken place and perpetrated in her name on this earth. I hope she is not aware of the deception that is going on in her name. The Catholics believe that Mary was sinless, that she is still a virgin, and that she is the co-redeemer and co-mediator. And we will look at that, but that is exactly what they believe. It's curious, though, that Mary recognized God as her saviour. Now, if she was sinless, why would she need a saviour? Let's see what she says in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. Mary recognized the need for a saviour. Then, after Jesus is born... Mary goes down to the temple to the temple, and makes the offering that is required of her. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 22 and 24. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with uh, what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. <clears throat> so Mary and Joseph go down and they make this sacrifice. 
And if you go back to look at the law of the Lord, what you'll find is something very, very interesting. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 6. This is after she's given birth. There's a time of purification. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. If Mary was sinless, why did Mary make a sin offering? They want you to believe that Mary was sinless because how could, how could Jesus have been born into a sinful vessel? So therefore they believe that on the, in the immaculate conception of Mary. But then she would have had to have had an immaculate mother and an immaculate grandmother and keep on going right back to Eve if you, don't want, the, if you want that process to be complete. She wasn't sinless. She made a sin offering. How was Mary still able to be a virgin? Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 56. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? When, when, where then did this man get all these things? Jesus had brothers and sisters named in the Bible, yet the Catholic Church wants you to believe that Mary is a virgin. Someone please explain that to me after the service, okay? Let's have a look at what the Catholic Catechism actually says about Mary herself. These numbers are paragraph numbers in the Catechism. It says, She was without a single sin to restrain her. She became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. She's my salvation? Blasphemous. Completely blasphemous. By her manifold intercession, she continues to bring us gifts of eternal life. That's in the manual. I'm being fair to them. She brings me gifts of eternal life. Devotion to the Blessed Virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. Stop for one second. Are we worshipping the same God here? Yeah. Okay. Pope John Paul Pope John Paul considered Mary to be so amazing. He was actually became known as the Marian Pope. Everything he did, he devoted to her. He was the guy who truly worshipped Mary on a whole new level. In 1998, Pope John Paul II said, I entrust the responsibility of the whole church to the maternal intercession of Mary. Wow. Mary apparitions are very well recorded. There are a lot of them. Well documented. Uh, I've seen video footage in the last few weeks of people who are clearly seeing something, who are clearly falling down in the presence of something. They're definitely seeing something. They describe her as what appears to be an angel of light. It's definitely Mary. Uh, there are signs of bleeding uh, eyes and crying statues and... Uh, when they do the, the um, communion, as we call it, blood coming onto the bread. These things are well documented. There are a lot of miraculous signs and wonders associated with Catholicism. That was something I wasn't really aware of until I started my research. And often you'll find Mary in these apparitions has got this young baby Jesus in her arm. And it's here and me and my son Jesus, a little baby back in her arms. And people bow down and they worship Mary. So just because we see an angel of light who claims to be Mary, who claims to say the young baby is in her arms, does that make it real? No, it doesn't. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. They'll believe the delusion. They'll believe the sign. We know they're coming. They're not an indicator of godly behavior. False, price, false prophets coming. Signs and wonders accompany them. If you see Mary with a babe in your hand, I've got a couple of fundamental questions I want answered. I thought Jesus was sitting at the right hand of his Father in heaven. Does he quickly get whacked into baby form so that Mary can run around the planet showing him off? It just doesn't make sense to me. It does not make sense to me. Furthermore, we need to be reminded that if it's something that looks like an angel of light, Scripture says that may well be Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Folks, we have to be discerning. Whatever experiences we face, we must go back to the Word of God and say, is that consistent with what the Word of God says? The other thing that fascinates me about this Mary coming back as the co-redeemer and the co-mediator is that the Bible is silent on that issue. Completely silent. Remember that when Jesus was coming as Messiah, for hundreds of years prior to his arrival, it was foretold what would happen. Over 300 times with deadly accuracy. Where he'll be crucified, how he'll be crucified, what the price will be paid when he's sold. What that money will be used for. Deadly accuracy, prophesying the coming Messiah. If Mary was to play such a significant role in the end times, why is the Bible so silent on it? Why are we not told, Mary's coming as your co-redeemer. Mary's coming as your co-mediator. Mary's coming to save you. Salvation comes through Mary. I'll tell you what I see. is gross blasphemy. It almost seems like someone is trying to usurp the position of God. Hmm. Has that ever happened before? Satan is on a very cunning scheme. And he's cunning because it looks like Christianity. And it sounds like Christianity. But when you get closer and you examine what they believe, it's nowhere near what the Bible says. And I haven't even finished yet. I've got a long way to go. Mary comes in these apparitions and she brings great advice. Children, read your Bible. Put it in a prominent place so that you remember to read it. Pray for people. Take care of the poor. And these are used by the Catholic Church as validation. Look, it's godly stuff she's asking us to do. It's godly. It's clearly a sign of God. But if you start to believe that and worship Mary and bow down to another God, you're deceived and your soul is lost. And so it's not harmless. Just because those things that she says on the occasions where they line up the word of God doesn't mean that they're not deception. Because if they deceive you away from the true and living God, and you start to bow down and put your hope and trust in Mary, you've lost, you've lost it. You've lost it completely. You're deceived. Mary Apparition said this, <clears throat> My dear children, today I ask you, so I invite you to ask yourself why I am with you so long. I am the mediatrix between you and God. Do not let yourselves be seized by fear or discouragement. Have great confidence in the powerful work of intercession and mediation of your Heavenly Mother. Message approved by the Catholic Church. But the Bible tells me in, heaven, in Hebrews 7, 25 and 26 something very different. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. Because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Who's our intercessor? Who's our mediator? It's Christ. And he's qualified. Why? Because he's holy, blameless, and pure. He's the one who's worthy to go in and be the mediator. 
between us and God. Is Mary qualified on that front to be my mediator? Did she lay her life down for me on the cross? I tell you what, when you see some of the things that she claims elsewhere, you think that she had actually done it herself. In Venezuela, she said this, Little children, I am the mother of good counsel, the mediator who is trying to persuade you to listen to the call. My message is of faith, love and hope. More than anything, it brings reconciliation between peoples and nations. It is the only thing that can save this century from war and eternal death. Ah, her mediation saves us. I don't think so. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. That's it. If you believe anything other than that, you are deceived and God is handing you over to that delusion. Best repent and get away from it. Seems the world really needs our help as well. The Lady of the Nations said this. The world is degenerating so much that it was necessary for the Father and the Son to send me into the world among all the peoples in order to be the advocate to save them. Approved message of the Catholic Church that we want to unify with. Excellent. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who is our advocate? It's Jesus Christ. It is not Mary. But the Catholic Church says, no, it's Mary. I've got a few more of these things, because I don't know if they work for you, but they definitely get me sufficiently upset. Our Lady of Akita in Japan said this, I alone am able to save you from the calamities which approach. Those who place their confidence in me will be saved. Is it? Our Lady of San Nicholas said this, My daughter, in this time I am the ark for all your brethren. I am the ark of peace. I am the ark of salvation. The ark where my children must enter. If they wish to live in the kingdom of God. As far as I know, and as far as scripture says, there is only one way that I enter the kingdom of God. And that is through the Jesus. That's it. I wonder if you're as frustrated as I am yet. The Lady of the Nations also said this. I stand here as the co-redemptrix and advocate. Everything should be concentrated on that. Repeat this after me. We can all do it like a dogma, if you like. The new dogma will be the dogma of the co-redemptrix. Father Gobi received the following message. Until I'm acknowledged there where the Most Holy Trinity has willed me to be, I will not be able to exercise my power fully in the maternal work of co-redemption and the universal mediation of the graces. You see, Mary deserves to be part of the Trinity. That's where she's willed to be. Well, the God who changes mind? I don't know if you feel the way I do. But this stuff is so blasphemous, it boils inside me. It frustrates me to a level that I cannot describe to you. Glad that I'm not one of them. But I've been sad when I see what a mockery those who profess to be Christians have made of the Word of God. What a mockery those who, who profess to understand Jesus are making when they say there's another mediator, that there's another redeemer, that there's another path to salvation, that there's another way to enter the kingdom of God. It makes me sad. It makes me sick. The precious blood of Jesus trampled underfoot by a harlot church system. And we say, but they're Christians. Let's unite with them. Wake up. We need to be discerning. Mary, it seems, also suffered for us. She said this in France. <clears throat> for a long time I have suffered for you. If I do not want my son to abandon you, I am forced to pray to him myself without ceasing. You pay no heed. 
However much you would do, you could never recompense the pain I have taken for you. The pain was taken by Jesus. Mocked, scorned, beaten, hung on a cross to die, bleeding for my sin. That's where the pain was taken. It insults me that Mary, or the apparition of Mary, claims that she took the pain for me. She did not. I'm going to leave Mary alone for a second. Um, the, other, the other big central uh, theme of, of Catholicism, which is very contradictory to what we believe, is this uh, Eucharist. It's the way that they do communion. And um, basically what happens, what they believe is they've got a, they've got a host. It's, it, it's like the wafer kind of biscuit thing. Okay? And the priest consecrates the host. And so as he consecrates it, they then believe in this miracle of transubstantiation. That Jesus himself comes in and he dwells inside the piece of bread. The physical body. It's unfortunate the side effect is bread. That's called a, uh, there's like a misnomer or something. But that's, like, that's not really what's going on there. The actual body and blood of Christ becomes contained in this piece of bread inside the host. They then take the host and they put it inside this stand, which is like gold uh, um, stand that looks like sun rays coming out. I'll show you a picture just now. And they put this host inside there, inside the, that monstrance is what the stand is called. And they, they, they then worship that image. They worship it. Because why? Because they believe fully, wholly, and completely that God himself has come into that piece of, of bread. And they bow down and they worship this image with great reverence. With genuine belief. As they eat that, they actually believe that they are eating the body of Christ. The blood of Christ. That it's absolutely been transubstantiated into the little biscuit. Let me tell you how seriously they take this issue. The canon and decrees of the Council of Trent says this. If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are fully contained, truly really and substantiate the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that he is only in it, uh, sorry, in it only as in a sign or figure or force, let him be anathema. If you don't believe that it really, really is God, if you just think it's a sign or a symbol, it's anathema. An anathema, because I didn't know what that was, is a formal curse by a pope or a council of the church excommunicating a person or denouncing a doctrine. You better believe it. Otherwise, you're out. Pope said so. <coughs> Happy days. International Eucharistic Congress in, uh, in June uh, 2000, the Pope uh, is quoted as saying the following. The Eucharist is a missionary sacrament. It's a missionary sacrament, not only because the grace of mission flows from it, but also because it contains in itself the principle and eternal source of salvation for all. The celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice is therefore the most effective missionary act that the ecclesial community can perform in the history of the world. It's a mission tool. The most effective missionary act, apparently. And I'm making fun of it, but you know what? The Pope is calling for this. The Pope is calling for world religions to be united in Eucharistic adoration. That's what the call of the Roman Catholic Church is. They believe that there's common territory of all religions to come together and have at least this one thing in common. That we have Eucharistic adoration. That we bow down before the monstrance with the host in it, because that's the very body of God. And they believe it is that powerful. Even Mary herself, sorry, back to my friend Mary. All, Mary Apparition said this. All the messages came from God and everywhere that I'm appearing. I'm speaking about the same things. Because through the triumph of the Eucharist, the mother wants all the churches to be reunited. So that there will be only one church for all the people. Pay attention. 
The Bible warns us of a coming one world religion. The Catholic Church considers themselves to be the head of the church. And they will be. As long as people, even here in Zimbabwe, rush up and sign allegiance to the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine and their body and want to work with them, brace yourself, you're setting yourself up for the one world religion. You're the first guys to sign up if you think it's clever. Peter Kreeft is a guy who uh, was a, Catholic, uh, was a uh, Protestant and he, and he converted to Catholicism and he wrote a book called Ecumenical Jihad, Ecumenical Holy War. And he said this, the power that will reunite the church and win the world is Eucharistic adoration. These two things, reuniting the church and winning the world, are parts of the same package deal, the same providential program, the ecumenical jihad. Eucharistic adoration. And I wonder, and I'm just speculating here. I'm speculating. But I wonder when we're forced to bow down to the image, if the image that we'll be forced to bow down to at that point is the Eucharistic adoration. Are we going to be bowing down to monstrances? Let's bring up a picture of a... There we go. So, so the, the, the one on the right is much bigger to see, but it's... So it's that, that gold thing is, is the monstrance. Uh, in the middle of that, the white circle, that's the host. Okay, that's where God is r- present right now, according to what they believe they've called him down. And um, what, what you don't see is that the host is actually held in place. That little piece of brisket is actually held in place by a moon-shaped uh, crescent lo- known as a lumate. And it's, uh, so there's the sun... And there's the moon. And those are the two images that you're bowing down to. Interesting, because that's exactly what the pagans bowed down to in the Old Testament. What is also interesting is that Mary often refers to herself as the Queen of Heaven. And the Queen of Heaven is addressed twice in Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 7 and in Jeremiah chapter 44. And the Queen of Heaven is the uh, Assyrian or Babylonian goddess Ashtoreth, the moon goddess. And she's the wife of Baal, or Molech. And uh, God didn't see that it was a pretty cool thing. If you want to go and read Jeremiah 7, chapter 7 and 44 yourself, you'll see that he condemned it as an abomination. And yet now, as a man walks with the moon and the sun in his hand, we all bow down. Go figure. It's pagan worship, and it's disgusting. That's not idolatry. Don't Catholics read the Bible and see, well, maybe that's idolatry. Maybe I'm doing something idolatrous. It would seem not to. It would seem not. As part of this ecumenical plan of getting all the churches and religions together, Mary is a, is a great um, common ground territory for Muslims and Catholics. Uh, Mary is considered very highly within the Muslim faith. Okay? And there's one place in Portugal, uh, Fatima it's called, where, uh, where one of these Mary apparitions took place. And it's interesting that it's called Fatima, because Fatima is Muhammad's eldest daughter. So Our Lady of Fatima, uh, that takes place in Fatima in, in Portugal, is a combined worship shrine for both Muslims and Catholics already. And if you wonder how a one world religion will take place, why don't we get two really big religions, like Roman Catholicism and Islam, and see if we can't find some common territory between the two. Folks, we have to wake up. We have to take the warning very, very seriously. But evangelicals are excited about it. They've signed uh, the ECT award, the evangelicals and Catholics together, And many people signed up. And look how excited they are. This is what Robert Schuller said. He said, it's time for the Protestants to go to the the shepherd, the Pope, and say, what do we have to do to come home? Pat Robinson said this. My meeting with His Holiness Pope John Paul II was a very warm and through a personal letter to the pontiff, I pledged to work for Christian unity between evangelicals and Catholics. Peter Crouch from TBN said, I'm eradicating the word Protestant even out of my vocabulary. It's time for Catholics and 
non-Catholics, see that little terminology, is cunning, eh? to come together as in one in the Spirit and one in the Lord. And then Billy Graham says this. I've found that my beliefs are essentially the same as those of the Orthodox Roman Catholics. Oh, do you believe? That just, the other guys that are mine, but when you see it happen to a guy like Billy Graham, you just go, oh no, please don't. Please, please don't. Do you, does he really believe the same as the Roman Catholics? Because let's see what Pope John Paul said in 2000. All who seek God with a sincere heart, including those who do not know Christ, will enter God's heaven, God's kingdom. I don't have to know Christ. If I, as long as I seek Him with a sincere heart, the Pope in 2000 says that I can enter God's kingdom. That's amazing. Without Jesus, I can enter. Mm-mm, not what Scripture says. But it's that type of thinking that allows the Pope to say the Dalai Lama is the great spiritual leader of our time. Really? Why didn't the Pope condemn and say, Dalai Lama, you guys don't believe in what we believe? Because they want ecumenicalism. Because we think that the Roman Catholic Church are Christian, but what they are is the front for the Antichrist. They're the start of the one world religion that will come. And that people will t- go headlong running into. Because man thinks that unity is more important than doctrine. The Pope has got it very wrong if he thinks that there's another way to be saved other than through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 Salva- Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name <coughs> under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's simple. Perhaps I'm just being divisive. Perhaps I'm just being nitpicky. Perhaps these things are just disputable items. The Bible tells us to to not go and chase disputable matters. Romans chapter 14 verse 1. Accept, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. So maybe my whole sermon is just a load of rubbish. Maybe these are just disputable matters. But I don't see it that way. When you start to mess around with the principle of the gospel, when you start to say there is another way to be saved, you have messed around with the gospel. That is not the gospel that I received. And I'm commanded by the Bible to have nothing to do with them. Nothing to do. I want to clarify here for a second. Nothing to do with them does not mean that we do not try and witness to Catholics. Because they are the harvest field just as much as anyone else. They need to know the truth. Jesus died on the cross for Catholics just as much as he died on the cross for me. But we cannot embrace them as a system. We must, each of us, go to those Catholics that we know and tell them the truth. Tell them the truth so that they may be saved and not bow down to false images, false gods, and false apparitions. Titus 1.9 He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refuse, uh, sorry, and refute those who oppose it. Refute those who oppose it. Well, we don't like doing that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers, and the blood won't be on your hands. There's some other things we need to consider before we rush into unity with the Roman Catholic Church. Is there any chance that the woman spoken of in Revelation is the Roman Catholic Church? Let's examine that for a second. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come. I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and seven horns and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, 
and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a cup of she held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Some interesting things. One is that she's covered with blasphemous names. I wonder if those names include co-redeemer, co-mediator, advocate, salvation through me. I like the way she's dressed because it sounds just like a Roman Catholic garb and I like all the, the, the jewellery and stuff that goes with the elaborate processions that they lead. Dressed in purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. And, blood, and drunk on the blood of the saints. Do you have any idea how many people have been killed by the Roman Catholic Church? Hundreds of thousands Killed in the name of God. Blood of the saints. And she's drunk on it. Revelation 7-9 helps us to understand this passage a little bit further. Because it clarifies who the seven hills are. It says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Did you know that Rome sits on seven hills? It's the city of seven hills. Is John giving us a warning? Revelation seventeen fifteen clarifies those waters. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Everyone signs up. And she's over at hand. I just want to close by looking at scripture so that we're absolutely certain who our mediator is. 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. From all sin. I specify that because the Catholics believe there are two different types of sin. There are venial sins and there are mortal sins. And they believe that you must pay for your venial sins. You must go to purgatory. You must go and the fires of hell must burn you until you're cleansed of your sin. And yet as I read scripture, there's only one thing that cleanses me from sin. It's blood. And it's Jesus' blood. The fires of hell don't purge sin. Otherwise there'd be no need for an eternal hell, would there? Imagine being a Catholic, dying with the fear that you have to face purgatory. How can you live at peace? How can you live at peace knowing that you still have to work for your salvation after you die? You still have to go and be tortured. What did Jesus come for? He came to pay for all of our sins. Everything. Complete. What a mockery to think that I can work to pay for mine. Does that not become a work salvation? Isn't that not exactly what the Bible warns us against? If I don't attend Mass, it's a mortal sin. Hmm? Am I working for my salvation? Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. And at the masses all over, in Roman Catholic churches all the time, we re-sacrifice God. That's what they're doing. Perhaps that's why their cross always has Jesus on it. Why? We believe He's risen. That's why our crosses are empty. But the Roman Catholic Church has Jesus hanging on it all the time. Why? Because they've never stopped sacrificing Him. Every time in their mass, they bring him down in their minds and say, we'll sacrifice you again. They even describe him as a victim in their catechism. They say the victim is the same. I never see Jesus as being a victim. I see him as triumphant over sin. That is not a victim. 
First Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. He died once for all. You do not have to keep on putting him on a sacrifice at Mass and murdering him again and again. It's heretical. It's blasphemous. It's disgusting. Hebrews 10, 12-14 But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It wasn't in Mary's arms with some apparition. Hmm? Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his fistful, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice made perfect. And purgatory exists because? Folks, I'm nearly finished. Hebrews 9 verses 25 to 28. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for for all at the end of the ages. To do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time. And it's not in your mass at every uh, Eucharistic adoration that you go to. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Ross, bring up that uh, final slide for me. Process it for a second. No doctrine, and you will know division. If you have no doctrine, then you'll find you have no division. Do we want to seek unity with the harder church that we warned against? Do we want to leave the Catholics alone because we think they're Christians so we don't have to save them? What is your responsibility to your friends who are Catholic? Will their blood be on your hands because you never told them the truth? I think it's very dangerous to seek unity with that system on any level. It's the start of the end time deception. Let's pray. Father, help us to be wise and help us to know your truth. Lord, help us to be light and salt where you placed us. Help us to know how to respond to those who are in such a great stage of deception. Lord, yet we know that many people are saved in churches like that, Father. Those who genuinely see the truth, seek the truth, who come to your word, soon realize the error and they leave, Father. Help us, Father, to be witnesses to the truth where you placed us here in Arari. And help us to be wise and discerning as we head towards the time of great deception. Where things look right, but are not. Father, we know that they look like sheep, but inside they are ferocious wolves. Help us, Father, not to fall victim. In Jesus' name. Amen.